0: It's so a good morning, right? We got lots to celebrate. We live in a country where we have the freedom to, to come and gather and worship our God together. Uh, and that has come uh, because there's people who have fought to protect those freedoms. And so we have a lot to be thankful for today. Uh, if you're not sure who I am, my name is Andrew. I am one of the leaders here at West Village. And this morning, it is my privilege to, uh, to uh, share the Word of God with you. And uh, So if you are a visitor today... I do want to welcome you and just let you know a couple things. First of all, if you do not have one of these, this is a Bible, and we don't just believe this is an ancient piece of literary art. Uh, we actually believe that this is God's Word that He has set down for us to tell us a little bit about who He is, what He's done, and then in light of that, who we are and how we get to live. And we want you to have one, so if you don't, please feel free to grab a hard copy here at the front, or you can just download one. There's a ton of Bible apps out there, um, really easy and accessible to use. Um, if you are new with us or if you've come in the last few weeks, uh, you may not know this, but we've actually been traveling through one particular book of the Bible together, the book of Matthew. And we kind of took a little bit of a break from that to go through our series, which is called Revive Us. Again, just a chance for us as a church to step back and look at some of those foundational practices of worship that actually help us engage the Holy Spirit and, and allow him to continue to transform us so that we can see Victoria saturated with the good news about who Jesus is um, but before that, starting uh, last spring, we'd been going through the book of Matthew verse by verse. Um, and again, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, a couple things to note. The Bible is one book, but it's actually made up of 66 distinct books. Uh, and four of those books in particular are called the Gospels because they deal in, uh, in Jesus' life, teachings, burial, uh, resurrection, and ascension. And so uh, we've been going through one called the book of Matthew, um, and uh, and it's kind of like a biography, but not quite. So if you kind of hear the word biography, there's probably some preconceived notions you're going to have about what a a biography is like or what it should contain. One of those things that we think of when we hear the word biography is kind of this chronological telling of someone's story. And if we start to impose that idea onto what the gospels are, we actually are probably going to miss some of the things that they're trying to do, um, Gospels are less concerned about telling you things in chronological order and more concerned about telling you stories and pe- uh, parts of Jesus' teachings in such a way that make explicit who he is so that you don't miss a point. Uh, great example of where we see this in our kind of our regular context. Uh, how many people watch the TV show This Is Us? Okay, like that is not nearly enough people watching this show. I'm sorry, but like this is... Uh, This is like an international phenomenon. Uh, If you are like a burly masculine guy and you need to get in touch with your feminine side, you start watching This Is Us and I swear you will be crying every single week. It will release all the stress hormone and suddenly you'll be able to take your wife on dates again. (laughs) No, uh, in all seriousness, This Is Us is a a really wonderful show and it... it, uh, it uh, follows the story of a family named the Pearsons. And what's really interesting about the show is, is it doesn't go in sequential order. Each episode, they actually take bits and pieces from the life of this family to help develop the characters and pull out different themes. And so you have this overall arching uh, kind of uh, character development story arc that's going on, but each episode is borrowing from different pieces as it kind of moves towards that place. And the Gospels are similar and, you know each kind of part of the of matthew 's work is actually trying to tell you little things about who Jesus is, but of course he 's also moving to this point where it 's going to culminate in Jesus dying and rising from the dead don 't worry we 're not going to get there for like another two and a half three years or but uh but we will celebrate it in a few months when it 's Easter. <laughs> Alright, so just again, uh, I'm going to do a quick review, really quick, of, of where we've gone so far. Uh, so, and Matthew starts off, Matthew makes a pretty big claim about who Jesus is. He gives us a whole genealogy and kind of links Jesus to promises that God has made to, to Israel's uh, past uh, kind of figures, great figures. Uh, and then he goes on to tell about Jesus' birth. It's a spectacular occasion. And then we just kind of have this fast-forward motion, and we get right to the start of Jesus' ministry. And so he's about my age when he starts in his 30s, early 30s. And, uh, And we see this one particular moment as he's getting started where he goes to get baptized. This is a symbolic act of submission to God. And as he's doing that, it says that the Spirit of God descends on him I know I'm going really quick here, so if you're like, I cannot follow this, don't worry. We have an entire podcast of our past sermons, and you can catch up. Uh, But the Spirit of God descends on him, and then God actually himself speaks and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus goes on. He's led into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. He's tempted by Satan, and again, uh, Matthew's really particularly using this particular type of imagery that he is to tell us things about Jesus. This is a contrast to Israel themselves. They were in the desert for 40 years and constantly failed to obey God, constantly failed to trust God, but symbolically, Jesus in the desert is the better Israel, constantly trusting God, constantly not falling into temptation. From there, we see him start his ministry and his His ministry revolves around him proclaiming this incredible message, repent, change your allegiance, because God's kingdom is here now. It's breaking into your world in this very moment, and you need to get on board. And he actually demonstrates that. He starts healing people who are sick. He starts casting out evil spirits from people. He takes the people who are ostracized, pushed to the edges of society, invites them in, and he calls followers to himself. And as we kind of journey there, we take a little bit of a stop because Jesus takes those followers and and he brings them to the top of this mountain and he starts to teach them, okay, now that you've heard my message about this kingdom that's coming here, I want to tell you what it actually looks like to live as part of my kingdom. And this is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And we've said this several times. Again, it was like eight weeks ago, so you might have forgotten. But uh, the Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the uh, most quoted and yet least obeyed parts of Jesus' teaching most quoted because it's so tweet-worthy. Let's be honest. like It sounds really good to say, uh, the Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you or hate you. It sounds really good. But when we actually start to unpack it and think about the realities that Jesus is teaching, they just don't really jive with the way that we are taught to live and think. So it's also one of the least obeyed teachings in the Bible. You see, Jesus' kingdom is not like our world functions. It's an upside-down and inside-out work. Upside-down in the sense that it's not the rich and the powerful, the you know, people at the top, the people who we'd normally kind of raise up and say, man, those are the, the world changers, you know, the, the like billionaire philanthropists who can give and give and give, who are going to change things. You no, know, Jesus actually says... The poor in spirit, those who recognize that they are so spiritually impoverished that they have literally nothing to offer. It's the meek, those who recognize that their own desires need to come after they serve others. At this same side, uh, time, it is an inside out work. It is those who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. It's not people who are out doing the actions but as those who are being transformed by the gospel. And as we've walked through this, we've continually noted that Jesus' goal here is to change our hearts. Because as he starts to change us from the inside out, he changes the people. And when we have an entire group of transformed people, what we get is what we talked about over the last six or seven weeks, gospel saturation. Jesus begins to change the world around, and we see that, right? We see that in history. And so after this, uh, this is where we're kind of at now, is just continually working through what this means. We went through a section called the Beatitudes, and now we're in, in a part where Jesus made this claim that he didn't come to get rid of the law, this Old Testament group of laws, uh, but he actually came to fulfill them, to be the true fulfillment of what they were intended to be. And, uh, and we've been kind of unpacking that. Uh, and, and so that's where we're going to dive in today. Uh, So if you have your Bibles to you, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 38. Sorry, I apologize. That was like a really long introduction. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay, I'm going to pull a Chris, and we're just going to stop there with like the first three words. Uh, You have heard that it was said, okay, six words. Uh, We want to just remind us that in this culture, in this time, people didn't have access uh, in large quantities to the Bible. They didn't have access to, they could just kind of download an app. Uh, these were rare scrolls, and, and they were kind of in the hands of a few teachers. And so uh, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he's, he's actually literally saying, you have heard someone teach you. And the people who were teaching them were called the teachers of the law or, and the Pharisees, a couple different groups that were in charge of that. And their job wasn't just to read the scriptures, but they were actually supposed to interpret how they were uh, to be understood. And so Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And and this is actually a direct quote from the Old Testament, from the Israelite scriptures. It's actually a direct quote from three different passages in what is called the, the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. Uh, comes from Exodus chapter 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. I'm um, just going to jump over and read one of these because they're all quite similar. Um, but uh, in Exodus chapter 21, I'll start in verse 22. It says this, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, okay, I'm going to stop right there. My wife's like 33 weeks pregnant. If you are being dumb and wrestling in front of you, uh, in front of her, and you hit her, Just, I'm saying, don't be an idiot. Don't wrestle in front of pregnant ladies. Like, common sense people. But, apparently, ancient Israelites didn't always have it either. So when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child or children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. Okay, good. At least something's happening. Teach him a lesson. As a woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if they harm, but if there is harm, then you shall pay a life for a life, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. That may seem a little bit intense, but what I want you to note here is that this isn't an individual imposing his will out of a, a need for retaliation. This is actually a court, a group of people, a community who is saying, this is as far as this gets to go. Uh, there's this ancient practice, uh, a law in Latin, they call it uh, lex italianus and, and what it means is it's like a law of limitation to, to stop escalating uh, returns happening. And so uh, when, when someone does something to me, I don't just want to go and do the same thing back to them. I'm going to up the ante. So, you know, I'm driving... Down uh, the Callwood Crawl, trying to get downtown in the morning, someone cuts me off. I don't just want to go back and cut them off. I want to cut them off, cuss them out, at the very least, flip them the old Trudeau salute to let them know what I think of them. <laughs> if we're being really honest, in most cases, our desire is not just to get even. When we are hurt or when we are offended, we want to take it up a notch. And yet God in his grace and mercy said justice does need to be done for these things but but it's not going further than this and it's not up to you as an individual to decide it's actually up to the community and yet in Jesus' day the teachers of the law had actually ripped these context these these verses out of their context and we're teaching people to think about this in an individual day uh, way so rather than being something that was meant to limit Rampant aggression it was actually a permission to go after people. And so Jesus comes and he challenges it and he says, hey, you've heard it said that this is how you should live, but actually I have a different way for you. You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, we have kind of a, I don't know, a... Uh, a certain worldview in which we kind of assess how the world works. You know, we, we look at other countries and we hear stories about cultures where things like child abuse or spousal abuse are kind of the norm. And we think, man, those, those terrible, wicked people. And yet, if you talk to people like my grandparents' age, even my parents' age, you know, baby boomers, busters, whatever generations are above them, uh, you know, the, it wasn't so long ago that, that abuse and things like that were just part of the norm of their life as well. See, what, what's changed isn't the people We're still the same wrecked, broken people that we've always been, but we started to create these kind of social pressures to limit that. And so you may not go and hit your kid, but I'm sure you can do some emotional damage. We have all these ways that we find to get back at people when we're feeling hurt or to attack people, to retaliate in ways that are aggressive and destructive. Listen to what Jesus says here. We jump back in. He says uh, in verse uh, uh, 39 here, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him also the other. I'm just going to focus a little bit on that first part. Uh, When Jesus says do not resist, the way that we hear this is like don't do anything. But Jesus isn't actually saying like stay passive. We, we understand this, and it's a little bit more complex in the, uh, in the Greek than the English, but there's actually some things that are getting pulled in here. Uh, Jesus is talking about a particular type of resistance, namely the resistance that leads to retaliation. So uh, just imagine for a second, Jesus is talking to these people who are living under oppressive Roman regime. They have uh, people who are aggressive, and he's saying, don't be zealous. Like, don't go crazy and try and fight back when something happens to you. There's a particular type of resistance that he's talking about, which is namely a revolutionary, rebellious, uh, retributive resistance. But he kind of contrasts that a little bit and makes it very clear for us that he's still talking about people who are evil. We can't miss the point of that. These are bad people with bad motives, who are out to do us harm. We can't lessen what Jesus is saying here. And so he says, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him your other also. Now, um, again, this, this, again, something we might miss if, if we don't kind of visualize this uh, when when you're kind of dealing with Middle Eastern cultures, like everyone's hand that they kind of uses their right hand. So if someone is slapping someone on the right cheek, they're slapping over here. So they're not going to do this kind of weird like, <clears throat> no, this is a, a backhanded slap. This is a, and that wasn't so much about harm as much as it was about insult. It was it was essentially shaming someone, degrading them. Basically, calling them trash, unworthy. It was a complete and utter way to insult them in a public manner. We don't necessarily have quite this same sort of symbolic act in our society, but we do have social media. And uh, as social media kind of grows, we see this shame culture start to build. I was reading a story recently in the National Post and. Uh, it, it just kind of talked about how this shame culture has developed in in our greater kind of Western uh, Western worldview uh, and told a story. There's a lady. Uh, she's a Caucasian lady. Uh, she was uh, going into her apartment building and there's an African-American gentleman who uh, had forgot his keys and he wanted to come in. And she's like, no, like, I don't know you. They, they were in you know, big apartment building, didn't know each other. Uh, she's like, no, I, I don't think I'm comfortable letting you in. He was super frustrated. as I might be as well, um, and decided to push in. And, and the whole time, he's filming this interaction. Well, of course, she's feeling really uncomfortable about it, but she kind of went a little crazy. Uh, I don't want to justify her actions. Like, she kind of went over the top and actually kind of trailed this guy, followed him all the way till he got to his room. Uh, when she, she realized that yes, he did indeed live in the building, she, you know kind of felt like a bit of an idiot, tried to apologize and kind of smooth things over. Uh, This gentleman was, of course, really frustrated, and he ended up posting this entire video of this interaction on social media. Now, this woman uh, got completely and utterly attacked. This this video went viral, and, of course, you can imagine what would happen. Uh, All these labels are flying. She's a total racist, a bigot, all this kind of stuff. No context, right? No one actually understands. Like, maybe... It had nothing to do with race, like the condo board could have had pretty strict rules, as a lot of condo boards do. We don't know. But it went so far that her job actually fired her. Now that is uh, an extreme uh, shame moment in our culture, right? And some of you may be looking at that story and saying, man, that, that woman, she got what she deserved. And some of you may be hearing this and being like, that was way over the top, but I I don't want you to miss the point. What Jesus is saying is it is better to be doubly insulted than to retaliate. It's better to experience that shame twice over than to retaliate. It is better for you after you've been waiting in the Costco parking lot For 20 minutes to get that perfect spot and someone sneaks in and steals it from you to go through it all over again than to go out and retaliate or cuss them out or whatever it is that you want to do. It is better for you to have to deal with the snide comments of that friend who is so superior doubly than to retaliate. Jesus continues, and he says, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. I mean, this is just a kind of a bizarre thing. I, visually, I, I look at this, and I think, Okay, if someone wants to steal my shirt, like, go ahead, because it probably doesn't smell good. I've been in it all day. Um so, so, you know, you kind of look at this and you're thinking, what are they thinking? But, but this was like an extreme act of degradation. Like someone is so intense on getting something from you that they're really willing to kind of strip you naked. They're willing to take everything that you have. And in the face of this radically uh, unjust action, what does Jesus say? He says, the way you should act is radical Generosity. Don't just give them what they ask for. Give them far above what they ask for. In in Jewish scripture, the most you could ask for was that undercoat, but you weren't supposed to take that uh, that cloak because that wasn't just your coat. That could also be your blanket. And Jesus says, if you have something more to give, give it. Jesus, that's crazy talk. Why? Why would we do that? Yeah, this is how Jesus has called us to act. As I've been reflecting through this uh, this sermon, uh, this passage, uh, Shannon, my wife, and I have been dealing with a situation. We have a couple of tenants at our house, and uh, we had a gentleman who came in. Uh, he, we kind of knew his daughter and, and got connected with him. And uh, and he let us know right off the bat that he was uncomfortable signing a, a lease because uh, he was hoping to get into some subsidized housing. We said, okay, well, why don't we put in a clause there that allows you to break the lease if this happens? And, and so we kind of thought, hey, we're we're kind of going out our way being super generous. Well, after only two months, um, he kind of let us know he was leaving and didn't sound like it was to go to the subsidized housing. He just wanted to leave and get out. And, you know, we were feeling pretty hurt and betrayed, a little bit taken advantage of. Uh, you know, we we kind of like, did this in a particular way and, and kind of hoped it would get worked out in that particular way, and yet seems like he's kind of using it just to kind of jump ship and leaving us high and dry. And uh, and then this this passage about this radical generosity of Jesus comes into mind, and it challenges my heart. And, you know, Shannon and I are walking around Thetis Lake and we're talking about, man, we're super frustrated and we feel hurt and, and, you know, what we want to do is we want to go out and tell everyone, man, this guy was a jerk. Like, he, he didn't, like, hold up to kind of, like, you know, what what he kind of told us. We have all these ways that we want to get back at him. And yet, you know, reading my Bible, just revealing my heart's probably not in the right place here. You know, I don't know what this situation is for you. Maybe someone has done work for you and and you haven't been happy with the work, and yet Jesus says, in the face of frustration, in the face of insult, in the face of injustice, be generous. This is like going to a restaurant and getting the worst service in the world and yet double tipping, not because this person is being paid to do a certain amount of work, but because of the grace that you were showing them, because of the grace you have experienced in Jesus. It's like having neighbors who uh, cuss you out because you decide to trim bushes in your yard. And then they come back, and when they finally realize that it was your yard, not theirs, and, and they apologize, and instead of you saying, yeah, you better apologize, it's you saying, hey, listen, how can we do this in such a way that it'll make you happy? That's a true story actually happened to someone in our church. Third example Jesus uses. It says in verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Um, again, culture of the day, just Jewish people, are they're being ruled by a Roman Empire. Roman Empire, like, you know, we kind of glorify them a little bit. They were... You know, lots of good things happening there worldwide, but it was a bit of an oppressive regime. And uh, Jewish people, actually, a lot of them hated the Romans. And Romans, in order to kind of keep their, their military moving fluidly, they had laws that they could conscript someone to carry their soldiers' packs, so that soldiers could be fighting ready when they kind of went to the next space. And so, you know, you come along, you're just walking, going about your business. Maybe you're even going to, like, sell stuff, and some soldier pulls you aside and says, Nuh-uh, you got to go and this mile, and you're going to carry my pack for me. I mean, just if if we think about it, this is like the equivalent of, like, during World War II, a Jewish person being forced to to drive supplies to the the Nazi headquarters or something like that to supply soldiers for the German army. Like, this is uh, completely and utterly preposterous. These are unjust circumstances. And yet, Jesus says, in the face of that, don't, Try and get your own, but actually give up whatever's going on in your life and serve above and beyond. Uh, When I was in college, I read a story of um, an American missionary. Her name is Darlene Diebler. Uh, Diebler Rose is her. She has two married names. She's married twice. Um, During the 1930s, she and her husband moved to Papua New Guinea as missionaries, and so they were preaching to some of the tribal peoples there. Uh, World War II breaks out, the Japanese invade, and her and her husband are captured, uh, and they're put in two separate camps, really severely mistreated, abused, forced to do all this kind of crazy labor. Like, they had to catch, like, flies every day because there was such a fly problem in her camp. And it was interesting reading her story because we see this attitude that Jesus is talking about here. She goes above and beyond, even though she's being extremely mistreated. And in probably the toughest, most difficult moment of her entire internment, she gets called into the commandant's office, and and he tells her, Oh, sorry, your husband's died. And you can imagine how she would feel in this moment. You know, she's been suffering And then this person that she loves, that she strived with, is gone. And she's far away. and She can't do anything about it. And this heartless man who has been the author of her suffering rubs it in her face. Now, how would you respond to that? And if it was me, I would be filled with anger and fury. And yet her response is in that moment, she shared the good news about Jesus. In that moment of complete and utter pain, her response was to share everything that she had at that point, which was nothing except the love of God. And it was transformative. I I, I read that later she heard that the same man was transformed, and he ended up sharing the gospel over the radio to Japanese several years after the war had ended. I don't know if any of us kind of have this situation where you have some kind of oppressive regime that can kind of just force us to do things, but we all have situations where there's someone in authority over us, and lots of times those people aren't awesome. Maybe you have a boss that just like has complete and utter unrealistic expectations and keeps throwing extra work at you. Maybe uh, you have a boss who just is a jerk and mistreats you. Maybe you have parents who are... You just can't handle. They're asking you to do things, and you're like, I don't have capacity to do all this. And yet, Jesus' call in this moment is to say, don't just do what's asked for, but go above and beyond. Don't just stay late and do that one piece of work that's been asked for. Work ahead so that your company can profit. That's crazy. And Jesus, what are you thinking? Jesus gives one final example. Verse 42, he says, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In the very end, Jesus makes clear what he's been pushing for the entire time, which is in the face of persecution, in the face of suffering, in the face of injustice, not uh, retaliating, is not even enough. You need to go beyond that. You need to give of yourself generously. You need to let go of everything that you have. One of the scholars uh, that I had a chance to read as I was studying this, uh, wrote this, and I think it's just, it really helps us. He says, in the place of the principle of retribution, he, meaning Jesus, sets non-resistance. In the place of the defense of legal rights, he sets uncalculating generosity. And in the place of concern for oneself, he sets concern for the other. And this is crazy. Like, let's let's actually just take a moment and think about this. This is absolutely nuts. Where in our culture do we see any example of this kind of self-giving, self-denying generosity? We don't. You don't hear stories about people who have the worst bosses in the world who work really hard over time at no pay, no extra praise. No chance of like, oh, maybe I'll get a promotion just for the sake of blessing their boss. You don't hear stories of people who go above and beyond to love and care for someone who has hurt them often. And yet Jesus says, if you want to be part of my kingdom, this is how you need to live. We have all kinds of ideas about what this should look like and all kinds of excuses of why we can't get there. Now, let's think about it. Like, man, you don't know what that person has done to me. You don't know what he said. And even just thinking about this call at the end, this call of like self-giving generosity, giving to someone who asks, (laughs) but Jesus, Don't you know all the stupid ways that that guy handles his money? I mean, it would be irresponsible for me to give. I would just be contributing to the problem. And Jesus, that that need—I'm just not feeling called to it. I just—I'm not there. Jesus, she's got a shopping addiction. Come on now. Yeah, what, what did you say? He says, if anyone asks, give. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, this isn't a catch-all for irresponsible philanthropy. You know, maybe the most loving thing that you can do in a moment is not give financially. Maybe it's invest time in someone. Maybe it's taking someone out for lunch who who asks for money. Maybe it is investing in opening your house to someone who has need. Maybe it's just spending time working through something with them. But I don't want us to miss the point. It definitely does not exclude the fact that God calls us to a rich generosity that will cost us, and likely through financial means. And I look at my life, and I recognize that I'm not there. And as I read this book and and I hear, man, if you want to be part of my kingdom, this is how you have to act, I know that I am not making it in. And I'm guessing if you're anything like me and you start to look at your own life, you know you're probably not making it in either And yet, we have got to step back and remember what Jesus said only a few verses earlier in chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's good news. Because if this relies on us, if this type of attitude relies on us, we have failed. But it doesn't relies on Jesus. Think about it for a second. You know, we were enemies of God. We were the ones that did something to him, but does he retaliate against us? No. He actually dies for us. We were the ones who abused what he had given us, and yet he takes that cost upon himself, and not only that, he gives of his very self for us. That is an incredible message. That is a message that can transform our world. If you're here today, and uh, and this is all new to you, I just want you to understand that there is a God who created you. There is a God who loves you. And there is a God who died for you. There is a God who embodied this picture that we just talked about today, who when you did something to him, He did not do something back to you. When you were out there wrecking his world and he had every right to be frustrated and upset with you, he actually gave of his very life for you. He held nothing back. He holds nothing back. And offers his very self to you if you will only. And so, because of what Jesus has done, we can actually live differently. Because of his generosity, we can be generous. Because of his self-sacrifice, we can be sacrificial. You know, Shannon and I continue to work through this reality of our situation with our tenant. Uh, The Spirit kind of uh, spoke to us in a couple ways, and he reminded us that uh, we were actually pretty bad tenants of his, his creation, and yet, Rather than being frustrated and speaking ill of us, he spoke a better word over us. He called us sons and daughters. He invited us into his household. He made us heirs. And so it's completely and utterly transformed the way that Shannon and I are approaching the situation rather than a situation where we're frustrated and we want to speak ill over a tenant. We're we're starting to celebrate the good ways that he has been a good tenant for us. We're starting to uh, just speak that intentionally over to each other. And we're working really hard so that we can try and find a replacement for him, which reminds me if anyone knows anyone look at the place <laughs> no but but in all seriousness <laughs> uh we really want to work hard because we we want to be able to ease any extra financial burden from him uh, if we're able to and and this isn't this isn't a celebration of Shannon. my goodness like we're not we're broken people. our, our initial instinct was like, man, we want to go down there and, and tell him what we really think uh, but But this is actually the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, starting to change us, starting to remind us of the grace that we have experienced through Jesus at the cross. We're going to finish off here in a moment uh, by taking communion. I just want to remind us of a couple things. Number one, this isn't just a you know, kind of a symbolic act that we do every week in and of itself. It is actually a beautiful picture of what we have experienced in Jesus. In the bread, we get this picture of a God who did not retaliate, but rather took the suffering that we deserved upon himself for us. In the blood, uh, in, the, in the, uh, the wine or the grape juice, we get a picture of the blood that was shed, of a God who would give everything to be reconciled with his people. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Um, But I I just want to close with this passage. It's a a passage from the book of 1 Peter. We went through this a few years ago. Peter's talking to some churches who are experiencing extreme suffering in their context. And in particular, he's talking to a subgroup in that church who's experiencing all kinds of other suffering because they're slaves. And he says this, because Christ also suffered for you. And he's leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. This is a picture of the gospel. And when this becomes... Heart of our hearts, it transforms us. And when people see this transformation, it draws them to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you so much that you were not content to just obliterate us when we sinned against you, but that you actually withheld retaliation and took upon yourself the penalty for what we had done. Father, on our own, we are completely incapable of living this out. And yet, because we have experienced this grace from you, you're in the process of transforming us so we can start to look more like you. So I ask that our church would just be filled with people who are radically generous, who in the face of injustice give of their very lives, who in the face of aggression and oppression turn the other cheek, who when asked are willing to... Give up whatever they have for the sake of you. Pray all this in your name. Amen.